What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DiCibato and this week we are going to talk about the business of disaster. Those companies that inadvertently profit after natural disaster hits. And then we discuss Apple's snub of the UK's Environmental Audit Committee after Apple failed to respond to inquiries about the company's electronic waste. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. The skies over the old US of A have seen better days as of late. Wildfires are turning the sky on the west coast a disturbing shade of orange, and there have already been so many hurricanes in 2020 that the official name list for hurricanes already has only one name left. It's Wilfred, for anybody that's curious. And there are weeks left in the hurricane season. According to the NOAA National Centers for Environmental Information, there have already been 10 weather climate disaster events with losses exceeding USD $1 billion each to affect the United States. That's compared to an 2015 to 2019 average of 13.8 events for the entire year, and before that time it was only 6.6 events. And NOAA predicts this number will continue to increase due to climate change. And usually when I start off like this, I want to focus on the impact physical climate risks can have on a company's operations and what risks there are. But today we are going to focus on companies that position themselves as being necessary for disaster preparedness or necessary to mitigate disasters, or just sell the products that you need in order to rebuild after a disaster. In effect, these companies are implicitly or explicitly in the business of disaster, and they court the same sort of investors as companies that work to mitigate the reason for all these disasters actually happening, aka climate change. My colleague Umar Ashbach looked into what sort of companies could be considered disaster essentialists, the types that we need after tragedy strikes. Yeah, so in the aftermath of a disaster, you would essentially have two different sorts of uh, companies that would be needed right away. One would be companies which are providing uh, short-term stopgap measures such as, say, power generators, etc., and and other tools and equipment which would be, say, available at your local hardware store or, or, or a Home Depot. On the other hand, there would be companies which which would be operating at a larger scale or scale on a longer scale in terms of uh, uh, rehabilitation as well as reconstruction work. And these could be activities such as uh, uh, fabrication, uh, engineering services, uh, consulting services. And these would be companies which are focused on not just the immediate short term relief efforts, but also longer term reconstruction efforts. Okay, so for simplicity's sake, let's separate these companies into two groups, the home improvement companies and the government contractor companies. The home improvement companies are those like Lowe's or Home Depot and their suppliers. Those that anyone off the street can go grab a generator or a pack of batteries to prepare for a possible electricity outage. The government contractors, on the other hand, enter into long-term agreements with governments to be available when disaster strikes. Those two groups sometimes overlap, but the big difference is those companies that have government contracts are pre-approved for business when disaster strikes. Companies can just immediately get in when governments say, we need you, 
there's been a problem and we need to rebuild and and just to give you a little bit of context here generally government contracting contracting is a multi-year process and it can take a lot of time there is a competitive bidding process in most uh, cases there has to be transparency there has to be public hearings so all of that really slows down the process of uh, supplying the goods and services which are urgently needed in certain cases. Right, so basically you're a company and you decide you want to make sure you're able to get a government contract because you have the type of materials needed for a community when disaster strikes. What you do is you sign up for a registry called the Disaster Response Registry and that's managed by FEMA. It's a US organization that deals with disaster relief in the country. Anyone can look at the companies on that registry because they're pre-approved to use public funds and so the US government needs to be transparent. The registry has about 70,000 companies on it and they range from small mom and pop shops to massive global corporations. And so we took a look at the companies on that list and we saw that there are about 8,800 in our coverage. So we thought we should see how this might work for a construction engineering industry that we cover. What happens when a company is called to action? So what we did is we looked at what happened in Louisiana after a deadly Category 4 hurricane that was the strongest on record since 1856 called Hurricane Laura, made landfall in August and hit a power utility in the region called Entergy. It has declared that almost its entire infrastructure, its transmission and distribution infrastructure, as well as its power grid has been uh, completely destroyed. And this will not be a restoration effort, but this would be a rebuilding effort. And so the municipality will say to FEMA, we need help rebuilding this. And the US government will look at its registry, find a construction engineering company in the area that can handle the job, and say, you're going to rebuild this municipality's utility. So as a thought exercise, we decided we would look at how many construction engineering companies are in our coverage that are actually on the registry, and we found eight. Jacob Engineering, Maztec, AECOM, Floor, Primor Services, Meyer Group, Amoresco, and Tutaparini. And by the way, all those companies have an ESG rating at a triple B or above, except for Tudor, which is at a B. So this all sounds kind of... I mean, aside from the destruction that happens, this sounds like an opportunity for the company. This sounds like an opportunity for the investors in that company. But there's one big thing that investors need to worry about when they start looking at companies that are on this registry. Because when disaster strikes, a government kind of has its hands full and there are certain things that can go wrong. Mainly, there's a big possibility of corruption. Whenever public and private money starts to entwine, there's also the possibility that some politician's buddy will get a nice payday while the company itself doesn't do what it promises. And if it does do it, it might not do it well enough to be up to muster. But while this is obvious, or seemingly self-evident, I decided I needed to get someone that's more of an expert to kind of confirm this conclusion I had. And so I went to fellow host and forever friend Bentley Kaplan, who has looked at corruption from his home in South Africa for us for some time to kind of give me the whole spiel on the possibility of corruption in companies that do business with governments. I think, you know, in terms of the ESG side, what is interesting is is the risk is probably not going to be coming from, you know, whether, you know, we're looking at this as a benefiting from disaster question it's more a question of you know how 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 clean is the business that's going on because whenever you're contracting with governments um, and particularly in some emerging market regions that is where the risk comes in it's it's the you know the, the the bribes and the grease money that goes into to winning those contracts by the way just to set this straight those eight construction and engineering companies that we mentioned during this podcast we have not found that there were any instances of corruption associated with those companies 
we try to measure corruption as part of our controversies coverage. It doesn't mean that they haven't done things that are corrupt. It's just there's no outward incidence of it. We haven't seen it. Um, so I just want to kind of clear that up there. But also, this necessity for life to resume after a tragedy creates this kind of multifaceted reality for investors that want to put their assets toward companies focused on something to do with climate change. There's this group that have these mitigated properties where they can actually slow down the effects of climate change by introducing more efficient technologies into our economy. But then there are also the companies that we were kind of talking about here, the ones that, as odd as it sounds, are going to benefit from the increased instances of natural disasters in the U.S. and elsewhere due to climate change. Um, but there are also some companies that do a little bit of both. They both mitigate and they both help communities deal with and prepare for a natural disaster like a hurricane or a flood. Water companies, for example, are at that intersection. Anywhere you are, whether a local government or federal government, you have to deal with some kind of physical risk associated with water, whether whether that's, you know, coastal flooding or, or you know, hurricanes or you're dealing with droughts or things like that. And obviously, as a municipality, you know, as, as a government agency, you're not producing your own equipment. So you have to get that from somewhere. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of a lot of that will come from private companies like like Xylem. Yes, Xylem, a.k.a. one of the largest global water sector companies in the world and likely part of the portfolio of 90 percent of managers that run ESG funds on the market. Xylem and its peers are crucial for municipalities to deal with storm surge and flooding and wastewater overflow and hurricanes and the polluted waterways that follow a storm surge that have engulfed a community after a hurricane. These companies provide the pumps, the monitoring systems that protect pumps from faults during a storm, stormwater systems, wastewater runoff systems, disinfection systems, hurricane equipment and relief products, the list goes on. But that is just part of what these companies do when it comes to the after effects of climate change. Yeah, so, you know, we were talking about flooding in the US and around sort of hurricane season. But of course, managing water is, is about a lot more than, than just flooding and pumping water out of low-lying areas. You know, in terms of climate change, we're going to be seeing some major challenges around water shortage and water availability. Companies in the water sector are also addressing those kinds of risks. So to be smart, to pick up leaks, to be efficient. Um, and, you know, those kinds of business models are not only going to have sort of long term viability, but as investors get more interested in impact investing or the sustainable development goals, I think that is going to be, you know, the space to watch. And I think another thing to watch is going to be what type of companies pop up now that climate change is here and there's going to be increased risks because of climate change, increased physical damage because of climate change, and how companies are going to be able to put themselves at the intersection of being helpful while not profiteering off of people's damage. It's going to be an interesting emerging ESG risk, especially when it comes to community relations, when these companies that come in to help out a community both need to make a profit, but also help that community recover from a disaster. The UK Environmental Audit Committee said Apple Chief Executive Officer Tim Cook failed to respond before a September 4th deadline about the company's electronic waste and how it's dealing with that waste. This comes as Apple is about to reveal a new Apple Watch and an update to the iPod Air, and that means a lot of consumers are about to trade in or ditch their old Apple product and opt for the newer version, which means there's going to be a lot more e-waste in our environment with the Apple logo on it. And that isn't great because 
e-waste comes with a lot of negative externalities like greenhouse gases, the release of toxic substances into the environment due to leaching, and the possible damage to human health due to illegal recycling activities. And for a company's perspective, there are a lot of missed opportunities for getting the precious metals out of a product like an iPhone when you recycle it. If you don't recycle it well, you can't get any of those precious metals, things like gold. But is Apple at financial risk because of its non-compliance? To answer that question, I have with me Siping Yu, who covers Apple for us. And Siping, what does this mean for Apple? I know it announced that it wanted to be carbon neutral by 2030, but does e-waste have anything to do with a carbon neutral pledge, a, an outward pledge to try to reduce its own carbon footprint, or is that something different entirely? Yeah, I think they, these are just two different perspectives. Be, um, for having a, a carbon neutral supply chain, it is largely a operation. Um, it, it is largely the the kind of um, energy sources that they're they're using in their operations. So basic. I think this is meaningful, but this is two different things. Um, for to achieve a carbon neutral supply chain, they just need to apply like renewable energy along its supply chain. And but e-waste is totally uh, something else. It's taking care of all the end of life uh, end of life disposals of their products, which is normally not counted as part of the supply chain. Okay, so you're saying this is just a reputational risk, or do you think there's going to be a risk beyond that? There is long been a concern that these are not very financially material material for companies because even though that we have seen increasing numbers of countries or regions or markets adopting uh, electronic regulations, but the, the overall enforcement of these regulations are relatively weak. Um, but we have seen some good signs in the past couple of years. One example is from India. The Indian authorities um, kind of lifted the import um, license for a number of um, uh, electronic equipment producers, including uh, Apple and Samsung, because these companies failed to um, meet up their environmental obligations in India. So I know we're picking on Apple here, and that's because they very publicly snubbed the um, UK authority on this, but the UN Global E-Waste Monitor report for 2020 just came out, and it said in 2019, quote, the world generated 53.6 million metric tons of waste, and only 17.4% of this was officially documented as properly collected and recycled, and total e-waste generation increased by 9.2 metric tons in 2019. This is hardly a problem just for Apple to deal with. But it is a signal that companies like Microsoft, like Apple, uh, are going to have to figure out how to deal with the e-waste they generate. Or one day, they might have a situation where a government decides just to send the e-waste back to where they know it was created in a similar way China has done with trash um, being sent to its borders. And then that'll be a big problem that everyone will have to deal with. And that's it for the week. I want to thank Umar and Bentley and Saping for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. And I want to thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps with my growth and perspective. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you next week and have a good one.
The MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.